Coming up on Verse Chorus Verse, I have to be honest, the last three years have been a ruse just to get a couple people trapped on a Zoom with me talking about <laughs> one of my favorite bands of all time. That's next. Welcome to episode 145 of Verse Chorus Verse. I am DL. With me is Evil. I bought Crocs, Jimmy. I'm wearing them right Evil. now. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> no joke. Silver Crocs. You don't have the budgies on? What are they? Uh, gibbets. Yeah. Gibbets. I've got, oh. I, I have more on the way. I currently have Slimer, <laughs> tequila bottle, little best, half of a best friend. My lady has the other half. I've got an Iron Maiden one on the way, a Michael Jordan one on the way. So you're really investing in these Crocs. You know what? Why not? <laughs> okay, well, more on that later. Um, also with us is the always fantastic, uh, one of our favorites, if not favorite person, through the pod, in and out, Miss Carrie Kirkland. Carrie, how are you tonight? I was given Crocs, I'm just gonna say. I didn't buy them. How long ago? In February. I was given Crocs. Crocs are a gift. Well, I'm that's I thought Crocs was That's a how I'm old... doing tonight. <laughs> I thought Crocs you either had to buy them like 7 years ago or you have to be a nurse. Those are like I the mean, two I mean, I was given Crocs by my mom who is you know could be a nurse probably and has been alive for more than 7 <laughs> years and she gave them to me to take up Mount Kilimanjaro. That was like a thing. Oh. Otherwise they would not be in my closet okay. ever. <laughs> Episode 145, The Crocs. <laughs> I really, Evil, I have a really important question. How is your summer going? It's a good summer. It finally warmed up in Boise, so that's nice. Is that sarcasm or are you being, I'm being serious? serious? It was a fairly cool June. By this time, like the mountains are usually kind of dry looking and they're still green, which means there's gonna be like horrendous fires later in the season probably. But yeah. yeah, it's finally warmed up. We finally got out camping last weekend, which was nice. We went to Stanley, Idaho, which is terrible. Terrible. Don't ever go there. Yeah, don't go no, there. It's awful. It's um, yeah, it's good though. I'm, I'm enjoying myself. How about you? My summer is going okay. It is uh, a little crazy, but I don't, I don't travel at all for work this month. So I am. I'm getting to do a little bit of at-home summer stuff, which is fucking crazy for me. <laughs> Carrie, you live in Perfectville, USA. <laughs> How is your summer going? I have been off for almost three weeks, which is amazing. And it's been filled with people coming to visit, which they haven't done since 2019. Basically, everybody that didn't visit during the pandemic has been visiting us this summer, which is really fun. And it's hot as balls here. It's like 115 last weekend. So hell. it's no. desert time. It's good. Oh, no, that's it's really not good. good. No, it's really good. Yuck. It's really good. But oh. yeah, uh, because it's like we live in Perfectville and Perfectville has a season that ends in June. And so like all of my jobs don't start up again until the end of July. So I get like this beautiful four weeks off. So for those of you that have been living under a cave and not listening to this podcast like idiots, you don't know who Carrie Kirkland is. Carrie Kirkland has been a friend of ours for a couple of years now. She just released uh, her second album, If When You Go, this year, which is an incredible jazz album. Go listen to it. Go look at the cast and then listen to it. Carrie, you say that you have had three weeks off. What does that entail for you right now? It means that I don't sing. For three so where, weeks. where have you been singing? I've been gigging like crazy in Palm Springs in LA. 
which nice. has been awesome. Yeah, I guess we haven't talked for a while, but yeah, since I got home in March, it's been nonstop. Like I basically did three months of gigs, which has been great. And then I have basically from the end of July till I leave in mid-September, straight gigs again. Which is so do you have why did I just blank on the name regular at a place like a residency thank you do you have a residency at a club or something or just I don't I just in the summertime I pick up the scraps of whatever is available I have a restaurant gig I have a club gig I have a lot of brunches a lot of private gigs which is really nice it's kind of all over the farthest I'm going this summer is to Chico California I love Chico never Never been. It's a land of very weird people in a good way. <laughs> well, I'm going for a private gig, so I hope it doesn't turn out to be like some kind of eyes wide shut situation. But <laughs> it but. is where uh, Aaron Rodgers oh. was born, and he's a he seems like an eyes wide shut type of dude. Yeah, he totally does. <laughs> he's into the Wyahuska. Waya you mean the ayahuasca? No, Wyahuska. Oh, oh, no, this is what? <laughs> what is this? It's a mispronunciation. Oh, dude. <laughs> okay. Evil, you're, we're not going to get into that. Um, what? No, what? I mean, we've talked about that drug frequently and, and our yeah. deep uh, wishes of being able to do it at some point. Mm. Yep. It scares me. Yeah. Just the vomiting alone scares me. That's part of the allure though, right? It is. It is. Wait, have you done it? No, 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 no. Okay. No. I have, I have a friend. <laughs> Who has done it like 26 times. So I feel like I've done it because oh my she's done it so many times and she's told me so many stories about it. So 26? 26 Third times. eye is squeegeed yeah. clean. Get a job. <laughs> <laughs> we are here tonight to talk about, like I said in the intro, one of my favorite bands of all time. What's the saying? Do three for them, one for you? Or something like that. Like in a residency? If you're making movies or you're making albums, you're supposed to do like one for the fans and then mm. one for you uh, kind of thing. Nope. Nobody. Nope. I'm getting the blankest stare. <laughs> Your back's getting scratched. This is, one, this is one of the ones for me. The Strokes is who we're talking about tonight. So you two aren't aware. The episode that's coming out previous to this is a solo DL episode about Meet Me in the Bathroom, the mm. novel that Lizzie Goodman wrote about basically 2000 to 2010 mm -hmm. uh, in the New York City music scene. It's a fucking amazing book. Have either of you read it or know what it's about? I know, know of its it. contents I, or anything? I, I have not read it, but I know of it. I haven't read it, but heard of it because of this, this, this what we're we doing. Do. The entire book is basically told in a story of quotes. Mm. She does not, there's no editorializing. The beginning of the book is an appendix of people's names and what band they're in and what instrument they play, who they managed. And then it's literally just, this name has this quote. Yeah, we were in New York City this night doing this gig and blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing is a guitar player saying, oh yeah, that gig, this and that. That's the whole book. Whoa. It's, I've never seen writing like it. It's incredible. I talked about it in the last uh, episode and I'd say 60% of the book is about the strokes. Evil... How familiar were you with The Strokes before I made you do this episode? So they came out a little before I closed off everything in my brain to anything that didn't have something to do with metal. So I was pretty familiar. I mean, I, I owned the first album and enjoyed it. I, I kind of caught the very beginning of, of their career and some of the bands that they kind of paved the way for before I 
you know, uh-huh. went off the deep end. Carrie, same question. I asked you to do this for multiple reasons that maybe we'll get into. Maybe we won't. It's none of your business, people. <laughs> but Carrie, how familiar were you with these strokes when I asked you to come on here and do this with us? Very similar to Evil. I knew the first album just because it was of a time. You know, it was it was of a time that I was in my mid-20s living on the East Coast. So it was, you know, it was prevalent. Beyond that, I'll be completely honest. I have never heard another song from another album, save for the first album. So oh, I started wow. studying. This is kind of <laughs> how, this is kind of what I was hoping for, <laughs> to be honest. Because I think that the majority of the not cult obsessed Strokes fans, that's kind of where it begins and ends, mm-hmm. that first album. As far as studying for this, as far as taking your, whatever, 12 pages of notes, a uh, fun, daunting... Uh, it was eye-opening, to be honest. I didn't know they had such a long history. You know, I didn't even realize, like, mm. 2020 is their last album. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, like, who stays together that long? And I know that, you know... Well, not the strokes. And, no, no. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, obviously ups and downs but to have a career that spans that long is commendable it was fun in the way that every song i would listen to not off the first album kind of like second album on i would go oh my god that sounds just like or Mm. oh you know i love modest mouse that sounds like modest mouse i can't believe i haven't listened to modest mouse in like eight (laughs) years you know and so many bands like that where i went through and i was like oh that's like bell and sebastian that's like the shins you know and i would go through my old albums because i have all of these albums that were either influenced by them or kind of done around the same time frame Mm -hmm. where they all sound a little bit alike. I can go off on a musical tangent when I start listening to something and it sounds like something else. And then rabbit holes on rabbit holes. Yeah. And then it's like eight lines on the chart later. I have to draw (laughs) myself back in when I listen to something that either is not really like my jam and, or I don't really know that well, I have to put on a very objective hat. If I like something, you know, I don't I don't really feel like I have to justify it to myself. But if you're not under this kind of sheen of subjectivity, then you are you really learning anything? So uh-huh. yeah. am I going yeah. too no, 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 no. far that, with that this? Because not at all. Sense. So it's like a practice in objectivity, which is really, really good for me as a musician. That kind of leads me into a question for Evil that I've been thinking about a lot this year because we've been doing more and more of this as we progress in the podcast. And particularly next year, I really want to gear a lot of things towards our passions because I'm finding that the more passionate you are, the better the episodes are. That's just Mm -hmm. how it is. Evil, are we comfortable enough yet with each other or will there always be a little bit of how do I go about this when you are coming into the strokes with whatever opinion you have, which I have no idea it is, knowing that they're one of my favorite bands. Is there any part of you that's like, shit, I got to kind of be like this with it? Or no, like, no, these guys. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. Because <laughs> you mostly like decent music. If you had like shitty taste, then I might have to walk on eggshells a little bit. <laughs> But. It is funny when I, I gave two options for this episode. I said, would you rather do Strokes or Interpol? <laughs> strokes. Yes. <laughs> I would pull no punches with Interpol. Yeah. Might have been a much different story there. I'm 
obviously very excited for this episode. We are going to get into it, but first we have to talk about the most important part of the night. It is a Thursday, but you know what I'm doing is I'm not going to work tomorrow. So Ooh. what are we drinking tonight? Carrie, you are the guest. You get the honors. Ooh. What do you What do you have? Okay, I'm going to show you. It Wait. looks like a Guinness. It smells like a Guinness, but it is a Guinness Zero <laughs> because we've had, like I said, nonstop people coming to visit and the people who were here last went on and on about Guinness Zero, about how much iron it has, how good it is for you, and it has zero alcohol. And I had wine with dinner, so I was like, I'm going to give this a try. They're gone now, so <laughs> I don't care if it's good or bad, but it's actually really good. But it doesn't have any alcohol in it. It does not. What but... is the point? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. But after <laughs> all this studying, if I had a drink, I would go straight to sleep. So oh, so we gotta is, invest in like gonna fuel me Red Bull iron vodkas in this. for you or something like that. Oh. For loco, <laughs> for loco, yeah. <laughs> Unless you want everything to be done in the nude, I think that's a bad idea. We have been trying to figure out how we're gonna get our numbers up. Anyway, <laughs> the, <laughs> it's not gonna be that way. Trust me, <laughs> my neighbors will attest. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, no let's carry no. on. <laughs> How many glasses of wine did you have? With dinner? Uh. <laughs> um, I'm going to go next. I am drinking. This is a Frankenstein drink. It is a kind of a Pisco sour, mm. but I. It's very pink. It is because I didn't have enough simple syrup. So I just put a teeny bit of grenadine in it oh. to help with the sweetness. I also it's like uh, a didn't. Lady. And the cancer? Yes. No. I didn't have enough lemon either. So I did uh, half lemon, half lime it, with Pisco. Yeah. It's it's fucking awesome. Yep. It's fantastic. I probably would not do it with the grenadine again, but it's not it's different, <laughs> but it's not bad. I approve of this drink. What do you call it? Evil, what's a Pisco pink lady? Like a Pisco's Peruvian, right? Sure. A Peruvian lady. How about that? Peruvian lady. <laughs> Evil, what are you drinking? Well, night of first, this is the first podcast I've been on with Carrie. So that's da, 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 yay. Da. Cheers. And it's the first time I've ever, have I drank anything out of a can on here yet? No, you had a Guinness, but that, I think you glassed that. Yeah. Uh, it's summer. I'm having a, a June shine hard kombucha. Okay. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Why not? And also. Fucking hippie. <laughs> Buffalo Trace. <laughs> okay. That's better. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I was, I was just kidding. Psych. That. I might have to up my like, ante after the break. Take your unearth shirt off, there, buddy. <laughs> As you can guess, we have a lot to cover. We are going to get into it after we take a nice little break. We'll be right back. are back hey let's talk about the strokes one of the most influential and i think i'll just stick with influential bands coming out of the resurgence of the 2000s new york city era started in 1998 we have julian we have nikolai we have albert we have fab and we have nick we've got nikolai on the bass we've got fab drumming we've got nick and albert on the guitars very very similar story to a lot a lot of bands a few of them went to school together they all were in new york city they start a band 
you can get into semantics tale as old as time as far as band getting together unless anybody found anything super random that they want to talk about mm. <laughs> carrie looks at 12 pages <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't printed I mean, out and everything they had a little help I mean, it's not like they were scraping to get by, you know. <laughs> These were fairly affluent kids who got yeah. together. Yeah. So who met yeah. in private school. Yes. Yeah. So. so I mean, I don't feel like that <laughs> takes away from the music. And from all accounts, they worked their asses off. Like Absolutely. they practice and practice and gigged and so they did the work. I don't want to take that away from them, but they were able to. That's a really, really good way to put it. Because I do think a lot of their later years and even after they got popular, which was before their first album even came out, <laughs> they got a lot of flack for that. You aren't some, you know, poor group of kids from New York City just trying to figure out where to live and, you know, living out of a van touring and shit. I think they battled with that a lot, mm -hmm. which isn't really fair considering, like you said, this, it didn't just fall in their lap. They worked their ass off. Yep. Like they, yep. anybody that's tried to be in a band or anybody that's been a musician or, or gigged like Carrie is doing now, or even just, you know, high school band going into a 20 year old band. It is so hard to pr just practice every day to get a band together and practice is really fucking hard. And these guys were making that happen every day, which doesn't really happen and is why they were so tight. Before they even had an album, they had labels fighting over them. Mm -hmm. You're shaking your head yes because it's super easy to get a band together to practice. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy. It's so great. The, the thing that is really incredible about this band is what you just said, the tightness of them. The era that they were coming out of was definitely a sloppier era in terms of music, which I loved, you mm -hmm. know, when you think about that. But they sort of brought back that punk sound of the super tight, almost like machine-like drumming. The guitaring that's mirroring everything mm -hmm. just perfectly, that's amazing. You know, that alone is really, really difficult and harder than I think people understand it is because it just it's just this sound, right? This sound that just happens. But when yeah. you think about what they were coming out of, when you think of the Nirvanas and the Pearl Jams and the Alice in Chains, like all of those sounds that were so visceral and, and full, but not super tight. Yes, tight in some ways, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They were so the opposite of that. It's a really interesting timing of it. Coming out of a time like you were just talking about, because you're, as far as that sloppy ness that was really popular and that I, you know, loved going to see in the clubs, but aesthetically too. Like all of a sudden you had these guys in New York City, they're all tall, they're all attractive, and they're wearing fucking button-up shirts and ties and mm -hmm. shit coming into these bars singing this who are these elitist pricks that are wearing fucking suit jackets up <laughs> on stage? Which brought in this whole other genre which we'll I'm sure we'll get into of these other bands that bands like Interpol that were all black suits or the hives. The or, hives. Yeah. yeah. Bands like that. Like the strokes started that even in a, maybe more of a not so good way. I think the strokes are responsible for a lot of the, the fucking skinny jeans with the white belt and the converse and the, they kind of started the whole New York hipster thing. Mm. And <laughs> evil. Do you now like them? I gotta less? go now. <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) They feel like, so this was a time we talked about like the kind of convergence of music that happened in the the mid late nineties where, you know, you used to have a, a radio station that would play all kinds of rock music. And by this time, by 2001, everything had sort of like delineated into these radio station formats. Like this is the hard rock radio station. This is the whatever radio. And and so they kind of bucked that trend a little bit. They were sort of like almost like a... 80s new wave throwback in some ways mm-hmm. back when a time where you had to be good you just had to be good to get signed there was no auto-tune there was no fucking around you just had to be good and they were yeah. they put in the work to be good they kind of i don't want to say blended genres but they i, I feel like a lot of people like the strokes you could yeah. be kind of into metal and still like the strokes you could be more into alternative rock and you like the strokes pop pop rock and you like the well, strokes. Well, because they were, they were also rock stars. Yes. Like, they yeah. did the whole, like, right. we're going to go fucking play and drink and go insane. People weren't really like that anymore either. Right, right. Yeah. They kind of brought this, like, the 70s New York thing. Like, mm-hmm. when Mick Jagger moved to New York and it, I mean, yeah. it, for as, as much shit as I talk about the Stones, considering the Strokes <laughs> are one of my favorite bands, I mean, the Strokes are <laughs> basically the Rolling Stones in 2000. That's kind of what they are. Um, except way better. (laughs) 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 Carrie, can you expand a little bit on, you said that you were on the East coast in the two thousands when this came out. Mm -hmm. If you remember when this whole two thousands thing kicked off, what were you listening to and what bands did it kind of gravitate you toward at that point? I don't think it changed my taste. You know, at that time, I was I was actually trying to think back on that, and I was thinking about what I listened to. Not everybody does, but you know me. I was fully still listening to the Smiths. I was still listening to like Peter Gabriel. I, Damn right. You know, he looks over me on every episode. I know. I love that. <laughs> when uh, when I moved to the East Coast, you know, I was in Pittsburgh, so I wasn't in New York. Surprise, and I'm going to let you get back to your point. One of the most surprising <laughs> cities I've ever been to as far as yeah. thought it was going to be one thing, got there, yeah. completely different thing. Yep, that but is exactly right. Really beautiful place. Very green. It's a fantastic city with an amazing music scene and art scene. Yeah, kind of crazy. And a really great restaurants too. I had no idea. And then I got kind of thrown into living there. You know, I was able to be influenced kind of by the stuff that was going on on the East Coast, but it didn't really change me. I think I was, I wasn't fully entrenched in my Britpop stuff. It's so much that I couldn't have been changed, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't strong enough for me. But I will say that like, I was obsessed with Johnny Marr for so long, you know? And then of course, you know, he was in Modest Mouse after he was with the Smiths and that kind of sound, you know, that super arpeggiated guitar sound, you know, that kind of carries through all of this. I remember though, that hearing the strokes, I do remember it. But I remember maybe two years later hearing Franz Ferdinand for the first time and being like, oh, okay. And I think that was what sort of hit me. And it did remind me like, oh, you remember that song like from a couple years ago? Yeah, it's kind of like that. It sounds a lot like that, actually. So it did sort of set the stage for future things that I liked. I just personally, I didn't 
find the whole album outside of two singles to really fully grab me. Evil, kind of same question. I doubt that the whole 2000s New York thing had any effect on you at all. Mm. Um, But I know that there's at least a couple bands that kind of came out of at least influenced by that era that you are into. Well, I she, she mentioned one. I really like Franz Ferdinand. That first album's yeah. so good. Amazing. Uh, I love The Hives. Yeah. I mean, they're Swedish, but still, same vibe. Uh, <laughs> Wait, why does that... Is that negative points? Sweden and New York. I'm, I'm just saying, it's not, not a New York thing. They're a Swedish thing. Yeah. But here's the thing. Yeah. At the same time, I'm, I was finding like Swedish metal bands. I found The Hives, too. We've talked about The Helicopters before. They're a throwback. And they were their music mm-hmm. at that era was, was a lot like, you know... Detroit rock city sound and stuff, you know, like, like yeah. MC five sounding stuff. I was a hair metal fan when I was a kid. I lived through grunge era and into the new metal slash ska pop punk stuff that followed grunge rock music needed a reset at, mm-hmm. at this point. And this, they were the reset. They were yeah, kind of the catalyst to bring, I guess, a little more authenticity back into music. It was like the cars all over again. Kind the of. The cars are. I'm so glad you said that. Like that. That is. <laughs> I hear the cars in them. I there are three bands. Absolutely. There are three bands that just kept coming back up over and over and over in my head. Two of them heavy. It's the cars and cake. Oh. You blend those okay two together. And then sprinkle in just a little tiny bit of like surfer rock a la low straight jackets. And you have the strokes. Maybe a a, a smidgen of Sinatra in there too with the crooning and the, you know. (laughs) But the cars and cake came up over and over multiple times. So I'm so glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. I kept getting Joy Division. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys are just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Modern English in there a little bit. That, oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that you said the Joy Division thing because of how much Interpol. Interpol was kind of the... Okay, so as far as the whole early 2000s New York scene thing, there was a band, a very much lesser known band that I feel kind of kicked off the whole thing called Jonathan Fire Eater. Mm. Then after that, it was really kind of between the strokes. Uh, I mean, the strokes started it, but then immediately after was Interpol. And Interpol was, I think, one of the big banes of their career was how much they were always compared to Joy Division. Mm. Mm. I, I think it kind of not only ruined, they felt like they had to go a completely different direction or else it's like, we're just going to be fucking joy division (laughs) 2.0 but a lot of these bands that immediately got big like the strokes and interpol and yeah yeah yeah's and tv on the radio they all kept going a little bit but none of them really lasted none Mm. of them really powered through more than like five years because i feel like that time was just so massive to the point of combustion i don't think a lot of them wanted to be any sort of symbol for anything I think they just wanted to fucking have a career playing music. Mm-hmm. But there's also a bit of an elitist thing there because it, especially for a band like the strokes, because the strokes have always had this big love hate relationship with being a band and having fans and stuff because they hate critics. They hate being reviewed. They hate their label. They hate <laughs> all of that stuff. But at the same time, they want to be a band and they want to make money off of being banned and they want to go play live. It's like, dude, you can't 
pick and choose. You have to take the fucking good with the bad. And I don't think a lot of those people were very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pesky little problem, isn't it? That's a tough thing because how much of that do you think was image, like exterior? Do you really feel like they felt like that? Have they? I mean, I, I've looked so far into a lot of things on these albums, but I realized about halfway through that I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much information here and there's so many. Yeah. It's like when you do that with any band, but for real, like this time period in particular was so blooming, you know, it was blossoming with mm-hmm. so much music. And, mm-hmm. and uh, like we said before, it's like you start going down the rabbit hole, but I don't know because I, n- I didn't find anything about this, but do you think that whole, like, we hate everyone, we hate everything, you know, but we're going to play some fucking rock and roll. Is that image? Or was that, like, in deep inside them? So I think a couple things. I think Julian is a massive... I mean, all these people are artists, mm-hmm. right? So they're fucking crazy. <laughs> and <laughs> ju- Can confirm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Julian is the type of... He's an artist. He... When the first album came out, when the second came out, the album came out up until he really, really cared about what people were going to think. And the strokes have not always been tr- treated well. In fact, they frequently have not been by reviewers and mm-hmm. a lot of their albums. So when you're an artist like that, that really does, you want to be a band and then all of a sudden, well, good job. You're the biggest thing in the world. Before you even have an album out, you're massive in three countries congratulations, you get to do this. You get to party. You get to go get drunk and play music every night. But then all of a sudden you turn around, you wake up one day and and you've got some fucking agency telling you that, hey, where's your next fucking album? Hey, this album sucks. It's kind of like being an athlete where in 24 hours, these fucking kids who are just partying and playing music all of a sudden have to grow up at the blink of an eye. It's not like there's any training for this or anything like that. They don't, what? Yeah, they're not told <laughs> how to deal with money or how to deal with fans or shit like that. So I read an article in Pitchfork about them, about the show. Back when Pitchfork was not a joke. <laughs> I mean, this is, we're talking 25 years ago, so. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, and one of the things that this journalist said was when the hype is that big, you can't satisfy it. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like when it is built up that much from minute one, we're not talking about years of buildup. We're talking about basically, oh, really when you say overnight success, that's what this is. Mm-hmm. And when you're built up that to that extent where people are calling you like better than the Rolling Stones, <clears throat> but <laughs> no, but I'm just saying like that's a calls them like a season. big <laughs> shoes to <laughs> fill. Yeah. You know what I mean? And how can you not fail a little bit, you know, exactly out of that? Because one of the other problems is, is they fucking lived up to the hype with their first album. Their first album came out and everybody fucking loved it. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was like, oh my God, these guys are the real fucking thing. And from there, I, you're right. There's nowhere to go but down. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere. It's impossible to live up to. Although personally, I think they kept getting better. I do too. The critics sure as shit didn't. They sure didn't. <laughs> well, there, there's this thing with very specifically with like rock music and, and the further you get into like subgenres, it's even worse 
where if you haven't proved yourself like on an indie label and, you know, toured in a dirty van and served your time, you don't have the respect, right? And so mm-hmm. if it's just handed to you, like rewind a few years, like the example in the grunge era was Stone Temple Pilots, like their first album came out on a major label and everyone was like, yep. they didn't do the work. It's Where's like, your indie, bro? you guys, it was handed to you. Mm-hmm. So yep. you have imposter syndrome out of the gate because of that. And they had to have felt the same way. They were even bigger with their first mm-hmm. album and they were the beginning of a scene. Like they didn't, they weren't yes. like coming into a scene that existed. They like launched it with in that way. Starter pistol goes off and they're like just sprinting, yep. you know, and they're leading the pack. And so, yeah, in, in many ways there's nowhere to go but down. But at the same time, I think that might've worked in their favor by driving them to actually be better and like to work to actually be better and better and better to live up to that sort of phantom that was built up by the media Mm -hmm. and the hype that wasn't even a thing until they, that first album came out. To me, what isn't fair about that, which it's the music industry, (laughs) fuck fair, but this band came up the way that you were traditionally taught to do it. They were fucking friends as kids They got together, practiced in their fucking, the warehouses or wherever they could. They made their own (laughs) penthouses. They're lower level lofts in the East Village. But they did an EP. They handed out their EP. Like, this is how you are supposed to do it. They were fortunate that they were in New York City, that they were able to hang out around these clubs like the Mercury, where people like Ryan Gentles were at, to be able to find them and say, holy fuck. But that's the thing, is 30 bands a week were playing at these same places, and you still had to be that one band that people were saying holy fuck about. Like You you did have to get to that point. One thing that we we are going to do that we haven't done that we should have done at the beginning, and I like doing this as a little bit of a haze because uh, (laughs) Carrie and Evil know each other 0%. (laughs) They know a little bit about each other. I want us all to guess each other's favorite Strokes album. I will go first since I know both of you like the back of my hand, basically. (laughs) We've we've all been... (laughs) Nothing. I kept this simple. Evil, I said, first impressions of Earth, because I do think that that is when they got the most flat out rock. Carrie, a little bit tough, but since you are such an 80s lover, there were a couple albums where they really started to go back to this kind of 80s root, Billy Idolish type of thing. And so I am going to go, fuck, I'm going to go with the new (laughs) Abnormal, their 2020 album. Mm. I'm going to say that that's your favorite Strokes album. Evil, what about you? He threw a monkey wrench at me early on because I had one picked for you, but we're not going to talk about that album very much. So (laughs) (laughs) for you, I'm going to go with Is This It, the debut. It was a splash. They captured lightning in a bottle with that album. They very much did. Yeah. So, uh, and I originally had that picked for Carrie. But she said something that changed my mind, and it's that they got better as they. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ah, and I picked the one. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so I, <laughs> I'm going to mirror you. I'm going to say the new Abnormal, their, their most, their 2020 release for Carrie. I hope we're smart. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I feel like either we all know each other really, really well or not even <laughs> remotely because I am saying exactly the same thing that DL it's, is this it because you're a purist and <laughs> I feel like you would hold on to the sort of that very first, you know, and yep. like that's your jam. And evil, I said the same thing, first impressions of Earth because it's got this grittiness and this hardness to it that the other albums don't have. None of them have. It has the song Juice Box. Mm. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, I just, you know, we've never met, but I also have been listening to you for like, what, two years now? And I feel like just, it is creepy. I've been. I'm not really, I'm I'm a dense book to read. I'm kind of like a pamphlet. (laughs) (laughs) Me like like metal. A trifle. So as far as the strokes, we were talking about their just meteoric, immediate, massive fame. And the numbers speak to that in a very bad way for them. Mm. Is this it selling about a million eight? A Room on Fire selling about a million five. So still a a good second album. They were probably hoping for a bit more. You know, you always want to do more your second than your first. First Impressions of Earth. 810,000 angles 170,000 they didn't even put the fucking come down machine on these numbers that I found Uh, the new abnormal 30,000 so they really just one of the big things that you will learn about the Strokes story and one of the things that really hurt them as a band is after their first album they were just fucking raked through the coals by critics Mm. the label kind of became a label they did what they did they decided this is how you make money this is what you need to do room on fire is fine but it better be is this it 2.0 because that's how we're going to make money one of the things that really hurt this band is how fragmented they got and i think that's for two reasons i think number one drugs and alcohol Mm. they were fucking partiers and number two I really think I was talking about how Julian is this really, really sensitive dude. He really care. He writes everything. He writes all of this, every song that they do. And except, so it, go ahead. Except for angles. Yes. And so when critics started bashing it, he disappeared. He basically mm. disappeared. Ryan Gentles picked them up. He became their manager. He's a little fucking kid. What was he like? 20 something. Jeez. Mm-hmm hanging out in a New York City bar. And he's like, yeah, I'll be your manager. And he's basically been the sixth, like people call him the sixth stroke. He's literally been with them the Mm -hmm. entire time. That's the other thing about the strokes is they are very tight. They are a very loyal kind of family. So much so that when Ryan Gentles, he, he was managing other artists, including Ryan Adams, who the strokes made him drop. It's a little ironic, but speaks to the eccentricities of the strokes that Ryan Adams was getting into a little bit of trouble as far as what he was doing when he was on drugs and things like that. Mm. And the strokes are basically like, you need to drop that fucker. Um, Plus the fact that I get, I didn't even, Ryan Adams came out with like a whole, his own rendition of, is this it? What? What? He covered the entire is this it album see this is what i mean when there's like so many side stories yes i did not know that (laughs) at all 
was it like a fanboy thing or was it was it a mean thing? I think it was both. I think it was like my manager is also the manager of the Strokes, so I can do this. Yeah, he started playing like "Is This It" live, and the Strokes are like, "Uh, no, fuck this guy." <laughs> and he did. And Ryan Adams also he was one of the you know after the Strokes and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs TV on the radio on that got really big, and all of a sudden. Before uh, 2003's Room on Fire, you had all of a sudden like The Killers was massive mm-hmm. and, and these other bands, you know, the the second wave came in and all of a sudden these people like Ryan Adams who weren't from New York are all of a sudden in New York hanging out. And you know how New Yorkers are. This fucking guy isn't from New York. <laughs> Fuck this guy. There was a lot of that, which is silly. Uh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk about how I became a fan of the Strokes real quick. So my mom was working at this large tech corporation in Idaho. She was a part of a team with one guy that was a big music guy. And she would get albums from him to send to me while I was out in the Navy. Mm. Honestly, this guy is the reason that I found so much good music. And one of the first albums he ever sent me was Is This It? just like a burnt CD. I remember the first time I heard it and you turn on that first song and it's, what's one of the quotes? It's been described as sounding like them playing in a warehouse and someone putting a tape recorder outside of it to record the album. Oh, I have a, I have a great article about this, but yeah, go. You might've found the same quote. I think it might've been Albert that said, it sounds like it's recorded out of somebody's butthole. (laughs) That wasn't the one. Because I listened to the first song and I'm like, okay, there's this weird, he's got a fucking cheap mic going through this $40 PV amp or something like that (laughs) sounding. And then the second song comes on and it's like, oh, it's the same thing. Wait, he's, they're doing this through the whole album. And I don't, I don't think I liked it the first time I heard it. But then of course I became obsessed with it. And our next stop was, I think Singapore or something. And I ended up buying the album there, the real album. Which, since I wasn't in America, ah, we'll get into that later. <laughs> but uh, that's that's how I found them. And I've just been a massive, massive, massive fan ever since. I think like a year or two later, I went to... So in Seattle, as Carrie, I'm sure, knows, there is a radio station that back then, it was the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had the End Fest every year. Mm-hmm. 2001 or two, the End Fest, it was at uh, at the Gorge. Mm. And it was Tenacious D, Our Lady Peace, Jimmy World, Cypress Hill, Popper Roach, <laughs> and uh, The Strokes. was. I feel like there's somebody else I'm forgetting, but The Strokes was on the bill. It must have been 2000 or 2001 because when they went up to play, they, they were one of the earlier bands and no one gave a fuck. Like mm-hmm. probably 100 people dancing. And of course, we're out there getting down and loving it. They're fucking wasted. Julian is literally falling off the stage. You're sitting there watching him like, he's not going to, how the fuck are they going to keep doing this song? And then the very (laughs) split second where he's supposed to sing, he gets back up and he grabs the mic, like uh, almost to where it's staged. It's so good. Uh, So I've been a (laughs) massive fan ever since. I'm assuming neither of you have ever seen him live. Never have. Mm -mm. Did you watch any videos at all? Oh yeah. Yes. They're good live. Yeah, they're really good they're live. They're solid live. I was actually mm-hmm. surprised. Impressed or not impressed, I will start with Carrie on uh, lyrics. Ugh, I don't love that word impressed because it sounds oh. so judgy. 
I think that I know it is, but um, like one of the things that kept coming up in articles I was reading were that, you know, they had such simple lyrics and part of that was because, you know, they really hadn't lived hard. And that's a good point. So many of the reviews that I read as well said, you know, the lyrics are so far from insightful. They're the farthest thing from insightful. They're so basic and they're so immature. And on the one hand, I can agree with that. But but then when you think about like so many bands are like that, you know, not yeah. every band is going to be Brad Roberts. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. like it's just yeah. not going to be like that. The lyrics got, did get better. Maybe some of that comes from the whole artist thing of like they finally lived through some pain and they finally had real life happen to them. Yeah. So uh, the lyrics changed. Nothing that I read in terms of lyrics really struck me. It was like, wow, holy cow, that's amazing. But there wasn't anything that offended me. Like we're not talking sting level bullshit. It's like <laughs> we're talking like, okay, this is... Basic rock and roll. Who cares, you know? Shots fired. <laughs> I, and I love staying. Don't get Post me wrong. Post police. Post police. Right? Post police. Post police. Yes. Yeah. Oh but God. like there was only one lyric and it was, I love you in the morning so you know that it's real. And I yeah. was like, that's a good lyric. Like that's. It is. Because I looked through so many lyrics just kind of hoping that I would find something a little bit deeper there are certain lines that i like but i do agree it's very it's the new york slacker vibe like it is but i kind of like that and i do think that as you were saying as it got later in the career they were battling demons they Mm -hmm. were fighting drugs and alcohol and they were i mean there's always going to be stuff to talk about there Mm -hmm. uh evil what about you his lyrics i think matches the minimalism of the music. You know me, I'm, I can barely read. I, I don't, I, I pay more attention to lyricism as of an instrument yeah. rather than the content of the words for, for the most part. And I feel like in that vein, like there's nothing cheesy in these lyrics or if there is, it's, it's pretty toned down. And I feel like the economy of words that he uses fits the music very well. And so, yeah, if, if yes. you don't have a lot of life experience to sing about, rate it in a little bit and make it clever. Mm-hmm. I'm working so I won't have to try so, so hard. hard. Yeah, I mean, yeah, great. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're clever lyrics. That whole song, yeah. you know, my mm-hmm. ex says I'm lacking in depth. I will do my best. You say you want right. to stay by my side, darling, your head's not right. That's that, great. The lyricism is extremely clever. Yeah. So as an artist, I appreciate that. And and I don't I don't need the depth. I don't need <laughs> You don't need dirt. No, I don't. Yeah. It, it doesn't match I don't the music. Need it. Yeah, I don't need it. And I think that sometimes, you know, you can overthink it so much and it's like, is it fun pop rock? Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. Does it need to be any deeper than that? No, it doesn't. But me being me, I'm like, I would love to find that little gem, you know. Yeah. It would make it extra special, but not everything is even when he's saying something that's pretty deeply depressing he's so fuck it that it's kind of mm-hmm. it's nonchalant yeah. very nonchalant yeah line from on the other side i hate them all i hate them all i hate myself for hating them so i'll drink some more i love them all i drink even more i hate them even more than i did before 
That's fucking <laughs> brilliant. It's not deep, but it's super clever. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and his delivery is what sells it. We're not enemies, we just disagree. That's he little things I like that take. I I think it's clever. And not everything needs to be fucking mm-hmm. look at what I went through. Yeah. Well, he didn't get into private school for nothing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. come on. Well, <laughs> money talks. What do I know? I didn't go to private school. Every, everything has a price. How good of musicians do you think they are, Evil? I think they're very proficient musicians. They're very clever musicians. Yes. Are they shredders? No. Are they in the pocket and super tight and as a unit, like indivisible? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. I agree. I think that I don't want to fanboy out too hard. (laughs) Albert and Nick are two of the tightest combo guitars. The way that they have learned to work off each other is fucking insane. Mm. And the decisions that they've made to me are they're they're my favorite combo of guitarists that I've heard in really, really, really long time. I also love that Fab's a great drummer. He got yelled at all the time by the band for not being loud enough. So that's why he kind of went to just Mm. as basic as he can, playing as loud as he can. And it fucking fits perfectly. (laughs) And then, of course, the bass lines are perfect in this band. Mm. They're perfect. Carrie, what do you think about the musicianship? I mirror a lot of what Evil said. I think sometimes for me, the amount of restraint that's there, it's creates this incredible tension that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the flip side of that coin is that I really just want them to fucking just go, you know, and like explode <laughs> out and it never <laughs> happens. And it's like such this, yeah, you know, like why, you know, that's part of the appeal for a lot of people is that it just holds that line is so tight. That's my feeling of um, frustration with it is that I think that musically they all really, really know what they're doing to the point that it's almost maddening. My personal (laughs) hell is like, put me in a small dark room with a Philip Glass album. And (laughs) that's torture, you know, like now you all know how to murder me. We don't have like an awards and categories like we do with, if you could add one musician to this, we're not do it. Yeah. Okay. Do it now. This is why I was so happy that you brought up the cars because they are super tight guitar players and they work as like, like I said, this machine, they're playing like some pretty complex rhythmic stuff together. It makes it sound simple. And that's not easy to do, to play the way they do and make it sound like it's easy because it's not. But Elliot mm-hmm. Easton mm-hmm. is one of the most underrated guitar players on the planet. These super cool riffs and clever little, you know, runs and stuff. And then out of nowhere, he will uncork one of the most beautiful blistering guitar solos you've ever heard. Mm-hmm. If they just pull him in for a couple of songs and let him just do that... <laughs> It would release that tension. It would be like, oh, fucking finally. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you a, uh, what you should watch after this. Mm. The Strokes did a show, I don't remember, 2002 or one or something like that. And uh, they were doing a show at the White Stripes. And Jack White came on and did New York City Cops with them. Yeah, see? I think I read about that, but I didn't watch it. Check that out. Okay. That's really, should we go through the albums? Hmm. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's yeah. start with Is This It? 2001. Uh, produced by Gordon Raphael. 
been described as them playing in a warehouse and somebody putting a tape recorder outside of it. Yeah, except not. Like, I have to read you this thing. Do it. This is so cool. So he met them in a club, and I'm reading this on this article. It's from a soundonsound.com if you're looking for it. He says, one of the most distinctive features of Is This It is the sound of Julian Casablanca's vocals, which are curiously mm-hmm. distorted and compressed yeah. from beginning to end. There were two techniques, explains Gordon. One consisted of an Audio-Technica 4033A mic going through the Avalon 737. And I would usually work with Julian for an hour just to get the voice tone. Until the final result was achieved, he would be extremely suspicious and unhappy. And invariably, the final result would have some kind of messiness or not quite rightness about it, at which point he would smile and say, this is great. So that was one technique. And then the second technique was something that Julian had discovered on his own at home while making the demos. He liked to sing through his PV practice amp, which you were saying, (laughs) Gail, which is about eight inches tall. Gordon saying, I would mic that with a Neumann TLM 103. (laughs) So he'd still be singing into the Audio Technica. Julian found the Neumann distasteful. But he'd be, quote, Neumanning it in order to get the exact details of what this horrible little amp sounded like. He wanted it shitty, but not too shitty. He would always say things like, this sound needs to have its tie loosened. Those were the kind of technical descriptions I would get every day. I'm so glad you said that because this is so, (laughs) it's surprising because you think of them as these New York City slackers. But Julian was a fucking, you and I talked about pet sounds this year. Mm -hmm. He was a fucking Brian Wilson in the studio. He would sit there listening to a hi-hat with the producer for a whole day and be like, no, it needs, I want it to sound like a fucking, if a antelope is trouncing in an open field in (laughs) South Africa, that's what I want this hi-hat. Like it's shit like that, that he would say. And I think that's why they had so many problems with producers because there were certain producers that just got it. How the fuck do you work with somebody? Right. Like that? <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of our conversations about Peter Gabriel and yeah. the weird shit that he was doing, like with drum sounds and stuff and how miking things in weird ways. Perfectionism to get a imperfect sound. Yes. But Gordon Raphael That's- was from Seattle. And so he understood that crunchiness. Mm. Like mm-hmm. he got it, you know, he... I did a little research on him and he ended up working with Regina Spector, Mm. which is totally the opposite of this, but he worked with skin from skunk and Nancy. And if you don't know skunk and Nancy evil, I think you would love them first of all, but skin went out on her own and she did some solo work with him and that sound, the like angry kind of, but still, not totally dialed in Mm -hmm. he nails that sound we talked about all the other stuff about this album how it was it was basically was going to be a hit people in a few different countries were waiting on this album before they even were signed by rca and rough trade there was a huge bidding war they were basically like we want to sign you and get to europe immediately because a lot of the labels thought that this was going to do way better in europe uh i could see that yeah I think they toured in Europe before they toured in the States. Yeah, they did. Which fuck, imagine that being in a goddamn, that'd be (laughs) awesome. Yeah, but it's such a Brit pop sound, Mm -hmm. you know, a Brit rock. It's so it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. It it really does. I don't want to spend too much time on this album just because everybody like, I'm sure that someday we'll talk about this album again. Everybody knows this album. Everybody, if you like the strokes at all, you love this album. 
this is the one that if we're talking about the strokes, everybody's going to be like, well, yeah, you're going to bring up is sure. it evil. What was your favorite song on this album? It, this is the lowbrow answer because it, it, <laughs> it's what pulled me in. And it's last night, which I, I think was the first single. It was the I big, think that was the, the big music video. Big, yeah. And it's the closest to that guitar solo that Elliot Easton sort of uncork a real guitar solo that I think they've ever have done. There's some really cool guitar stuff, but in terms of like a solo, like a solo that's not guitar decoration, they're really good at guitar decoration, but not solos. Those are different things. This is like the one solo in their whole catalog that stands Mm -hmm. out to me. Carrie, what's your favorite song on this album? Okay, so the notes say best song and favorite song is very different for me. Well, give me both. So like my favorite song, I had two, Alone Together and Mm -hmm. Trying Your Luck, I thought were like the strongest non-singles and the most interesting to me. So like for me, I'm all about melody, you know, and it's a song, if it has a great melody, it'll probably hook me. Mm -hmm. And I found there were only a few songs on here that had any really distinctive melodies in the vocal, but I think they're best song on this is Someday. That's a good choice. So I'm going to preface this by saying that any song that is in my best songs for the albums might be my second favorite song on the album because I didn't do... At the end, we're going to choose our top five favorite stroke songs. So if it was on the album, I didn't make it the best song on the album, if that makes sense. Oh, man, I I did this all wrong. No, no, no. There's no wrong way to do it. We're all fucking blind people in a corner. We don't know what we're... Wait, what? (laughs) I feel like you offended so many subsects of the population right now. That's what we we strive to do that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Better grasp on their entire catalog. I would have done exactly what you did, which was separate my favorites from best. But right now, I can't tell the difference. Mm. Like, it's just so much music to try to gauge and judge and pick apart. I just went with, like, what did I think sounded good to me? And I'm still trying to pick my number five for favorite songs. I've got four, (laughs) but I I don't know what the fifth one is. Are you listening to the strokes right now? Yep. That's My cool. favorite on Is This It, and I I think part of it is just, it's just a fucking badass song, but also the kind of story behind it and everything is New York City Cops. They had to take it off. Yeah. Well, they didn't have to. They chose to mm-hmm. because that's the other thing is this album came out. We all know when it came out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fairly important date. So they felt that it wasn't appropriate to have on there. And you can still find like the album that I got in another country did have this on it. It also had Mm -hmm. the original cover, which is basically a awesome artistic, but it is a little sexual. It is a woman with a black glove what i don't know how do you so there's a photographer called colin lane he was kind of hanging out with the strokes and he did a lot of photography for them it was his girlfriend who got out of the shower and so he did a lot of fashion photography and he had a bunch of clothes and props and stuff lying around the apartment and he saw these black i think they were chanel gloves he just thought they looked cool and the really neat part is that, like, he did the shot with a Polaroid camera. <laughs> what? And, That's awesome. Yeah. And so That's, he only had, like, fits. 10 chances. 
to get a, a shot fucking for them. crazy as I'm, okay, so the fucking album is behind right? me and I'm looking at it and it's totally a Polaroid yeah. picture. Mm-hmm. That's fucking yeah. crazy. And so his girlfriend got out of the shower and he was like, hey, can I take some photos of you for this band? And she's like, sure, that's fine. And so he did it and they went and grabbed these props and one of them was the glove. He just thought it was kind of like provocative and sexy. But the thing is that Julian didn't love the cover art and he actually ended up finding the graphic that they use which uh-huh. is like the bubble the blue mm-hmm. and thing. orange yeah mm-hmm. he found that and he made the decision unilaterally like we're going to change the cover but it had already gone into production and so the first few runs of the album were done with hmm. that cover he had to like sort of say okay i guess we won't be having that as the cover and he he lost it but he was so happy because he's like Man, if we had done that like even a day later, my cover never would have made it. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Why would he not? Okay. That's such a good cover. I think it's the best cover of all yeah. of their covers. And I'm like, the f- okay, so here's a question for you, DL. These guys were supposed to be like these bad boys, <laughs> you know, right? And they nixed the cover that is really not that no. provocative. It's intriguing but it's not provocative and then they nix the new york city cop yeah. song like which i get like you're, you're not gonna just be a total dick sure. but wouldn't part of your artistic integrity just go like i'm sticking with what well, i did part of being a rock star no yeah that's mm-hmm. the but that's part of the question for me that from the very beginning that you posed saying like they wanted all these things but they didn't you know it's like yeah if you're a true like balls to the wall rock star, you're gonna be like, I'm doing it. How and that's I did why it. I don't think Julian is a true balls to the wall rock star. Okay. Like I think he really does care a lot about what people think. Okay, as far as you know, I'm gonna walk on stage and I'm gonna rip shit and then I'm gonna steal your girlfriend for the night. Like, yes, he is a true <laughs> rock star. <laughs> but all the other shit, he's really not. I think he's okay. a pretty sensitive fucking guy that baffles me because the new york city cops thing it's fucking 9-11 america was very different that day mm-hmm. uh yeah. that month yeah. that year i get that but the fact that it was the fucking band that changed the co- i thought it was because of basically the united states said nope 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 yeah, that, that's I, me too. fucking insane. It was Julian who ultimately I'm made the decision and said he was he was worried about the response of a conservative America. It kind of put them in the album art of like the shins. Yeah, no, know, that cover kind sucks. Of like, I mean, it doesn't suck, but it's it, not. It's, it doesn't suck. It's just it doesn't say anything. No, it doesn't. And that album cover hmm. behind you says something it's that makes a statement. Perfect. Next album is Room on Fire, which we're skipping. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it. As you know, looking at the episode title, part one, well, this is it. Join us Thursday for part two. Versecourseverse.com at versecourseversepod, iTunes, Spotify, all the other places. We're going to have another hour of The Strokes on Thursday. We'll see you then. Good night and good luck. Not to love the person.